Hello, musical theatre fans. Welcome to the Mayor of Musical Theatre podcast. My name is Ian Bokett, and every week I ask special guests from the world of musical theatre and beyond all about their favourite musicals and what show they would order run forever if they were the Mayor of Musical Theatre, which is obviously a very, very made up position. Today's episode was a really fun one to record. It's with the American composer and performer Benjamin Scheuer, who you may know from his show The Lion, or even from his new piece Amounted for Elodie, which he is about to take up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this August. He'll be playing the Gilded Balloon Patterhouse from August 4th to the 27th, and as you'll hear in this chat, I've seen early versions of this piece, and it's absolutely beautiful. I cannot recommend it highly enough. This podcast is produced in association with MusicalTheatreReview.com, your premier source for news reviews and interviews on all things on stage, backstage and worldwide. I sometimes write for this website and if you search back in the archive you can find the five-star review I gave to the Southwark Playhouse production of Benjamin Scheuer's first show, The Lion. I'm a big, big fan of him and this interview is an absolute treat to record. Um, for some context, we recorded this uh, just before he got a suit fitted at Huntsman's Savile Row, a very fancy and well-regarded tailor shop in London. And they were kind enough to let us use their gorgeous club room above the shop. It was recorded on one of the hottest days of the year, just as a thunderstorm was starting. So I arrived all hot and sweaty from the tube, wearing my cheap Primark work clothes, feeling very flustered and out of place, which I don't think I ever really got over throughout the entire interview. Very flustered. But but honestly, let me tell you, Benjamin Scheuer is the kindest, most welcoming guy and super keen to talk about musicals. Um, but here's the problem. He's also a guitar lover like me. So we immediately started chatting about the beautiful instrument he had brought with him. And that's where this podcast starts. So don't worry, we quickly get on to talking about musical theatre, but I just wanted to leave in a bit of this nerdy guitar chat because it does give, give a bit of insight into how seriously he takes his craft. And, and honestly, if this slowly morphs into a podcast where people talk about their favourite guitar timbers, then I wouldn't mind. There's a whole 30 minutes about me rambling of rambling on about my beloved mahogany Kalamazoo KG-11 that I've had to cut out and maybe one day I can use that when this turns into the Mahogany and Rosewood podcast. Anyway, let's get into this slightly all over place but absolutely fascinating chat with the incredibly talented, very well dressed and downright delightful human being, Benjamin Scheuer. It's something that gets into the vascular system of the tree, a bacteria, or excuse me, a fungus. This guitar is my Tom Crandall guitar, and in A Mountain for Elodie, it's used to play a song called Good Morning that Elodie sings when she's three and a half and she wakes up me. Uh, and the song begins as a monologue from Elodie, and then it ends as a duet between Elodie and me. Uh, and of course, in the show, I'm the only performer, so I'm singing a duet between my three-year-old daughter and myself. And so it's tuned. It's quite an upbeat rock and roll sort of a tuning. There's a lot of headroom in that guitar, so you can really attack it. Yeah, it's a very loud guitar that can get louder and louder and louder the harder you hit it. <laughs> though, though it's a small body guitar, I think because mm. it's quite wide, deep, yeah. sort of deep sideways, it just it's, it's just a very it moves a lot of air. Yeah, so you got that lovely big bass for when you're doing those hard strumming patterns like that. Yeah. So with the, all the other guitars on stage, obviously you've got one electric, which does its own thing in um, the Los Angeles song. And then the other acoustics, so different tunings for like finger picking or strumming. That's right, yeah. So I use, so my main guitar when I, uh, the two main guitars in the Lion were two Froggy Bottom guitars. Okay. Froggy Bottom's a company based in Vermont, uh, uh, which is where Anais Mitchell is from, of course. Of course, yeah. Uh, and... Um, there's a song in Mountain Virality that's called See My Heroes that's about Eddie Van Halen, and it's addressed to Eddie Van Halen, my, my guitar-playing hero. Eddie, of course, mm. uh, lead guitar player in the eponymous rock band Van Halen, uh, thought of as one of, if not the greatest electric guitar player who ever lived, and he absolutely was my hero. And when he died, I was so, so sad. He died a couple years ago. And so I wrote a song 
to sort of explore why I was so sad. And then I realized actually I wasn't necessarily sad about Eddie Van Halen. I was actually <laughs> sad about my own father who'd introduced me to Eddie Van Halen and then died when I was a little boy. Mm-hmm. And that, that guitar that I play that song on in a mountain reality is a froggy bottom model H 12 and it's tuned C G D G C E, which for the, my, my friends and super nerds of the lion is the exact same tuning I use in the lion for a song called cookies and banjo for a song called dear dad. And for the title song in the lion, the lion. So the foggy bottom guitars I've seen before, they've been sort of dreadnought shaped. Is that, this one? Yes, so the, the H12 that I play in A Mountain Ferality is, uh, is similar to a, a Martin Triple O. I've got a oh, Martin right. Triple O 28, and so this is pretty much the same size. I, I've also got uh, a, a jumbo froggy bottom that's tuned down a whole step, and I use that guitar. And so all I mean for, for my guitar playing, for my perhaps uh, my friends who don't know what that means, it's the guitar is tuned the way any regular guitar is, just a little bit lower, a little bit lower. So a little deeper, a little more growly, a little darker nice. sounding. And that's kind of the main guitar that I use on stage is this froggy bottom jumbo. And on the back of it, there's an, an etching that says Elodie. So when I look at the back of the guitar, just where the neck meets the body, it says, oh, I'm reminded of my daughter's name. Is that the one with the gorgeous, very light colored woods with a very dark grain in it? Yeah, well spotted. Yes. It's a spalted maple back inside. Beautiful. It's something that gets into the vascular system of the tree, a bacteria, or excuse me, a fungus that gets mm. into the vascular system of the tree and makes it very beautiful and sound very good if you catch it at exactly the right moment. See, this is a great thing about guitars because you can have, there's so much romance about them. I, I love the piano. I love playing piano, but you are pressing a button, which is making a hammer move, which is touching the string. You're not, you don't have your arms around it. When you strum a guitar, the notes are underneath your fingers. You can wobble them as much as you want. You can play a note in so many different, different ways. And I guess that's why I think all but one of the songs in Elodie's Mountain are on guitar. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I've got, a, I've got two songs on the piano now. Okay. Uh, there's the title track, A Mountain for Elodie. And I think you, Ian, you saw a version of the show where, in fact, the show had a different title. It was called Elodie's Mountain. Yes, the very uh, first that's right. Crazy Cox shows. Yeah. That's right. And so I've changed the title to A Mountain for Elodie. And mm-hmm. so there's a song with that title that I play on piano. There's also a song that I play on piano called Banged Up Cars. Uh, the opening line of which is, your sperm look like banged up cars. And I'm directly quoting a doctor speaking to me. And it was such a ludicrous thing for a doctor to say to uh, a patient. Not passing along challenging information about fertility difficulty Mm. is problematic. It's that using an automotive simile (laughs) seemed a little tenuous to me. So I wrote a song about it, and then I c- later called him up and told him I was, when I learned that actually, you know, my wife and I had Elodie, uh, I said, you know, y- y- you seem to make it clear that I wasn't going to be able to uh, have any children. Uh, we, I just want to let you know the good news that we have, we have a, a child now. You, you said to me, your sperm looked like banged up cars. And he's like, I wouldn't have said that. And I was like, I know you said it because I was taking notes because I wrote it down because I'm a songwriter because it's the <laughs> opening line to a song now. And then yeah. he said... Well, it, it wasn't it wasn't that they don't move. It's that you know they. I was like, no, I I understand. I'm not confused about the simile. <laughs> like I understand yeah. the simile. You were complimenting my sperm there, doctor. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it was such a strange phrase, one I'd never heard before. And I and I wrote that song actually on a baritone guitar. Oh. Uh, and then baritone guitar is a is this guitar that's tuned very very low. Uh, and um and then I, tra- I. I tried playing it on the piano. And I find that's a really useful thing to do, writing a song on one instrument and then having to sort of transpose the music, the accompanimental music onto a different instrument. My hands end up doing different things. And Mm. so Banged Up Cars now lives on the piano in the show. I guess as a songwriter who performs all their own songs on stage with just you and one instrument, you don't go through that process of thinking, how will this, what will it sound like? Will it have a whole band? Maybe I should have this instrument, this instrument. So going through that process of putting it on a different instrument, it does make you think about it again rather than just going for your first instinct. Sure. And there's another song in the show uh, called I Think Your Mother Is Sexy, mm-hmm. a song that I wrote to my daughter. And it, it, 
the song only reveals at the very end that, in fact, I'm singing to my daughter. If, if you come and see A Mountain for Elder, you'll know who I'm addressing it to. But if you heard the song, I Think Your Mother is Sexy, stand alone, you wouldn't be sure. Uh, and I wrote that song on a guitar. Uh, on stage in A Mountain for Elder, uh, I play it on a teeny tiny toy piano, which sounds sort of j- joyfully clangy and clonky and not very pretty. Mm-hmm. And it, it was fun having written what I thought was quite a bouncy Paul McCartney-esque melody and transferring it onto this little toy piano that I play with one hand Mm. that sounds objectively bad. (laughs) Uh, uh, And so I get a kick kick out of that. Well, that is a very Beatles thing, actually, isn't it? Like, when they were working in Abbey Road, which we'll talk about in a minute because you recorded there, um, but when the Beatles were working in Abbey Road, if there was like a harpsichord in the corner which they'd never seen before, they would just try it and it would go on the record because they were trying every new weird sound they could find. Yeah, I'm a big fan of using the recording studio as an instrument and creating different sonic textures and different sounds that I otherwise wouldn't have and whatever instrument is lying around just going over, you know, what does that sound like? What does it do if we plug the wrong end of this into the wrong end of that? It's bound to make some kind of a noise, even if that's an exploding noise that blows out the power. <laughs> and as long as you get it on tape, there's probably something creative to do with it. And uh, a number of these songs in the show Mountain Fidelity, I wrote and then recorded however I imagined them sounding. For, for example, the title track, uh, Mountain Fidelity, I recorded with an orchestra at Abbey Road. And there's a video that folks can watch of me playing the piano and singing with that orchestra. And so when I played the piano in the show, and I don't have a full orchestra behind me, I'm thinking about how can I try and generate some of that feeling and some of that sound with the piano. Similarly, with with the guitar, there's a song in the show called um, Here I Come Los Angeles. Mm. Uh, I've done a recording of that where it's guitar, vocal, and percussion, just making clanging noises. And so I'm interested in how can I use the guitar to sort of generate that clanging of a factory, the sort of monotony of a factory, which is reflected in the, in the lyric of this song, Here I Come Los Angeles, which is about the monotony of being on tour and the, the, the challenges that it poses to a relationship when one of the people on tour is performing, the other one is not. And that song, when you perform it live, it's electric guitar straight into an amp. It's not as if you're using loads of effects to do this. This is all in your playing. That's, yeah, it's in my hands. I mean, and, and Eddie Van Halen, who is you know, I mentioned as my favorite guitar player, really was uh, extraordinary at generating different sounds with his hands and his guitar. Then, then that's not to say he didn't use different effects to whenever they were valuable to him, but they were never crutches. And if you could get the sound of an elephant or the sound of a horse or the sound of a rocket ship from your electric guitar, all of which Eddie Van Halen did then you don't need the rocket ship effect or the elephant effect. And so my, my interest as a guitar player is to d- develop new techniques or tr- transpose a technique, say, from the electric guitar onto the acoustic guitar, mm. uh, perhaps one that I'd never heard before on the acoustic guitar, and, and see how I can generate a new sound. And one which supports the storytelling, very important to say, because this isn't just a concert. This is, it's, it's a musical. That's absolutely right. A Mountain Virality is very much a musical. It, it looks and sounds, perhaps to the sort of casual listener and viewer, like a well-structured concert. It's built very much like a traditional piece of theater. And all I mean by that is, in a piece of theater, the promises from the performers to the audience are a lot higher than they are in a concert. Because the audience promises to come in, sit down, and shut up for, say, an hour. And you'll hear 10 songs. And in a concert, if you hear 10 songs and five of them are good, okay, fine. The songs you don't like, you can chat, you get a beer, you get some pretzels, you go pee. But in the theater, you're forced to sit there for all 10 songs. So if only nine out of the 10 are good, then you have one big problem. So my promise to the audience is I want to make every song worth their time and really entertain them and tell a larger story using all these individual pieces to to build a collective whole. You're right. There's nothing worse than when you're in a musical and there's one song which really lets the momentum die when you're really invested in the story. And because it's very story first, your shows. Yeah. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my hero Frank Lesser under the bus for a moment. <laughs> Guys and Dolls to me is a perfect show. And then there's the song More I Cannot Wish You, sung to Sarah Brown by her her guardian. And I always wanted that song to be cut from the show. I know ne- I never knew what value it brought to Gambler New York. Mm. And uh, it seemed to me like there was a reason other than telling the story and entertaining the audience for that song to be there. Like someone wanted a song or it was in somebody's contract to do a thing. Or yeah, there's a costume change. We need to get the main actors off stage. For right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it, it, to me, it doesn't belong in the same show as my time of day or if I were a bell or luck be a lady. <laughs> so Frank Lesser, if wherever you are, if you're listening, cut that song. <laughs> So this is something that actually quite surprised me about you because seeing, um, well, I saw The Lion first and I thought, oh, great acoustic songs, done really well. And then I saw what was then Elodie's Mountain is now a mountain for Elodie at Crazy Cox. Um, I assumed you were from, and you kind of are from like a rock background, an acoustic guitar background. But then obviously I wanted to talk to you for this podcast. I sent you these questions. You sent the most thoughtful, well-written out answers in response, which not not every guest does, and thank you for that. But I didn't expect you to be so into musical theatre. I grew up in New York uh, with my two younger brothers and my mother and father, and my father was a big lover of music, and we lived 25 miles north of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And we'd drive into Manhattan to see a Saturday or a Sunday matinee of... Guys and Dolls, of Tommy, mm. Bring into Noise, Bring into Funk. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, Rent, all of the Gilbert and Sullivan shows at uh, the 96th Street Symphony Space. I mean, that's a huge range just in terms of genre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my father loved jazz. Mm. Uh, he took me to the Blue Note when I was eight years old to see Charlie Watts, the drummer from the Rolling Stones, play with his jazz band. And there was always a lot of jazz playing in my house. Charlie Parker, uh, Bud Powell, um, Thelonious Monk, and a lot of classical music. And I took piano lessons when I was a little boy. And I I loved, I mean, the thing I loved about musical theater is it was music and stories. Like, I loved dressing up. I loved Halloween. I loved clothes and costumes. I still do. We're here uh, having this chat uh, in Huntsman on Savile Row, home of, you know, some of the most beautiful clothes in the whole wide world and to me you know they, they pay attention to every detail mm. uh the the thread on a, in a buttonhole just the way that we songwriters will pay attention to every comma in a lyric you know most people won't know where the commas are in the lyric but we do it makes a difference yeah when you spend hours and hours just crafting the perfect line because it was one syllable too long before and you just you, for your own peace of mind you can't do that yeah. Bruce Springsteen can do that I don't feel I can do that yeah well, you know there and there and it's a lovely aspiration and and so the the writers the songwriters who I sort of grew to really admire you know Pete Townsend who wrote Tommy and Frank Lesser who wrote Guys and Dollars and and um Rogers and Hammerstein uh Rogers and Hammerstein and and the, you know, uh, I did a production of Cabaret when I was in school. And so Kander and Ebb mm. became people who I really admired. I did a production of Sweeney Todd when I was in college. And so I fell completely wow. in love with Stephen Sondheim. And the way these people married music and a lyric, you know, I, w- I think it was Yip Harburg who said, music is the way we feel and words are the way we think. And so song allows us to feel our thoughts and think our feelings. And I thought this was extraordinary. And I thought maybe I'd have a go. That is beautiful and so true. Um, have you read the Sondheim books, the Finishing the Hat? Oh, have I, I ever? Books. The attention to detail on every single syllable is incredible. I went to go see the Chichester production of Assassins last week. It wasn't a show that I was familiar with. And I went to go see it because it's directed by Polly Finley, the great Olivier award-winning Polly Finley, who uh, I'm very lucky to have directing my production of A Mountain Fidelity. Wow. And it was, it, I thought that Sweeney Todd was the scariest Sondheim show. No, <laughs> it's assassins. <laughs> yeah, people don't really bake people into pies in real life, but look at the news, bloody hell. Yeah, they re, this is for, for, I mean, I didn't, I assumed it was about people who wanted to kill people. I was right. Uh, it's about <laughs> everyone who has tried unsuccessfully or successfully to kill a United States president. And there they are with guns on stage. I, I find guns on stage pretty uncomfortable, I got to say. 
I don't I don't really like characters on a stage with a gun pointing it anywhere, let alone at the audience. Mm. And this isn't a critique of it. I I don't I think it's very powerful. I simply, as an audience member personally, it makes me really uncomfortable. I know what you mean, especially, I suppose, growing up in America. Well, I lived in America for a year just after university. Did you really? Where did you live? In St. Louis. A friend of mine had done a study abroad thing there and become friends with a pastor who was an absolutely lovely person, but we moved into her house, this pastor's house, and yeah, guns. And this is the most liberal, left-wing, caring, kind person and then obviously you walk downtown and and you see some things. It's, it's, a, it's a scary country in some ways. I'm not ready for it. I'm very glad to live in the UK right now, mm. especially now that I have children. Uh, are you living? Are you based in London at the moment? Yeah, we live we live in Islington. My wife Jemima and our and our now two children. Wow. Yeah, I guess if you are raising children, you want to be in Islington as opposed to. Some areas of New York, some oh areas of St. Louis. Oh my goodness! Jesus. Look, I mean, I love New York City. I had a, an extraordinary time there, and I made a lot of great friends. You know, you mentioned Anais Mitchell earlier. Yeah, I I would see Anais at parties in New York, and I wrote to her recently because mm. somebody posted a photograph on Instagram of the new tattoos they'd gotten, and they'd gotten. Uh, the big quotes across their body of some Anais Mitchell song lyrics and some Benjamin Scheuer song lyrics. Wow. And so I screenshot this and I sent it to Anais. I was like, hey man, have you have you seen these? And she hadn't seen them. So we had a we had a, a bit of a powwow about that. But you know, I got to hang out with Shayna Taub and Sam Wilmot and Alan Schmuckler and Gene mm-hmm. Rowe and and Andrew Lippa and I'm writing a show with Rick Ellis right now who wrote Jersey Boys and Peter and the Starcatcher. You know, I, I had a lot of I recorded the record songs from The Lion in New York. It's produced by the wonderful Jeff Crayley. And so mm-hmm. I, I love New York City. It's a great, great town, especially for theater. You know, the Tonys just happened, and some wonderful people won some wonderful prizes. And it's great to celebrate theater. It's great the theater is back and, uh, and coming, up, coming up for air after being underwater for a long time. So I'm, I'm really glad about that. But all of that said, I feel like there's some really exciting stuff happening here in the UK in, in musical theater. And I suppose getting to go to Broadway so regularly as a kid is not, not as if you'd ever get tired of going to Broadway, but, you know, you've, you've done it. It's not as if something, it's something you've been aspiring to your whole life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, and I'm back in New York City enough that, that mm. I, I feel comfortable enough that I, I don't feel like I'm missing out. Though, uh, I, I, I missed the most recent production of White Girl in Danger by Michael R. Jackson, okay. uh, a songwriter who I admire hugely, who wrote, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning Strange Loop. Uh, and uh, I missed his most recent show off Broadway. So, you know, sad to not be in New York for that. But uh, on the other hand, I did get to see a show like One Woman Show here in London, which I thought really knocked me out. It's not a musical. You know, it's a <laughs> wonderful piece of straight theater. And yeah, did you get to see that one? Uh, no, I heard so much about it, though. Every single one of my friends was telling me it was the best thing they'd ever seen. It's and really good. I'm an idiot for missing out on it. I'm sure it'll be back. I'm sure so it'll popular. come back. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we've kind of started this podcast all over the place because I saw a guitar and got very easily distracted. The format is usually, I will go through all the questions we have and we'll talk about them one by one, your favorite musical in all these different categories. We've kind of talked about them already, but just for the sake of going through them, was there... In your childhood, was there one show which really got you into musical theater? Yeah, Guys and Dolls was the show that really got me excited about musical theater. I saw the 1991 Broadway revival starring Nathan Lane as Nathan Detroit and Peter Gallagher as Sky Masterson. And it's a great cast recording of that production as well. Fabulous, fabulous. And I thought at the time I wanted to be Sky Masterson. I have realized in hindsight that I actually want to be Frank Lesser, who wrote the show. <laughs> so Sky Masterson, what was the appeal? As I guess well-dressed, confident? He was well-dressed. He was so handsome. <laughs> he was a little dangerous. He was very sexy. He mm. sang beautifully. You know, he gets these great songs. It's I'll Know. And uh, he, the, the, he sings Luck Be a Lady. Uh, and oh, it's and he's just so he's so cool. I'd never seen anybody this cool before, and and I 
Oh, I was completely enraptured. I've since become friends with his daughter, Catherine Gallagher, who's a wonderful musical theater performer in her own right. I saw her in Spring Awakening, and I just stood up to applaud at the end. And then she stood up from stage, was like, it's Ben Scheuer, it's the lion, and come backstage. <laughs> so I came backstage afterwards, and we hung out, and then we became pals. It's really lovely to hear. I mean, something that's had such an impact on your life and then meeting people who are in that orbit. Yes. I can't it's, imagine. It's great. And, I'm, and, and I mean, Spring Awakening is such a great show and I've been lucky enough to get to you know, hang out and do a little, do a little bit of work with, with Duncan Sheik who wrote that show. Uh, Whose um, who's new show, uh, Secret Life of Bees, uh, just closed at the Almeida here in London. Another one which I missed. I'm doing bad at pretending to be in a musical theatre expert. I'm meant no, to be the mayor of musical theatre. But, but I mean, we can't know everything, right? There's because, yeah. and, and that's for the great reason that there's so much wonderful stuff. I have not done New York as much as I want to do New York, but London especially. It seems everywhere you look, there's an incredible musical opening. Yeah, anything that you've seen lately that you can recommend to me? 100%. Um, well, there's been a lot of chat recently about the Benjamin Button in Southwark Playhouse, which is lots of acoustic instruments, lots of folk songs, which might be up your alley. Ooh, who wrote this? It is Davin Clark and Jethro Compton, I want to say off the top of my head. Great. Um, I look forward to it. It's, it is spectacular. It's been getting five-star reviews across the board. It's not much can make me cry on stage anymore because I'm jaded and cynical and old now, but it's such a powerful piece, seeing a whole life. I mean, it goes backwards as well. As, you know, but sure. Yeah, I, I mean... I love the Southwark Playhouse. I, I was last there when my show, The Lion, had its revival with Max Alexander Taylor playing the role of Ben, and I got to see I got to see Max in the show there in May 2022, and it was it's such a cool theater. Oh, I, and I also saw Mark Holman and Greg Codis's show about the beginning of life, which is called Yeast Nation. Yeast. How good was that show, though? That was off the wall. I mean, those guys, I love Mark and Greg. I think they're so loopy and mm. so weird and so funny. And I, I loved how silly and, and how surprisingly moving this show was. Yeah, I dug it. <laughs> Why shouldn't Yeast talk? Why shouldn't they have emotions? It's beautiful. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> when I sent you these questions, you were kind enough to give me a really detailed response back. And you said you were kind of incorporating the first three questions into one answer. Right. So you said, which, uh, which show made me fall in love with theater? Which score gets stuck in my head? And what's my favorite musical currently running in the West End? So uh, I'm very pleased to say that the answer to all of those is Guys and Dolls. My wife, Jemima, took me on my birthday, which is in May. It's the 10th of May. Mm -hmm. To go see the production of Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theater, the Nick Heitner production. And... Gosh, it's so wonderful. It's so great. Uh, I, since the 1991 Broadway version, which to me is the benchmark, I've always been a little disappointed by every production I've seen uh, because they just haven't been that good. And th this one blew me away. This, this production at the Bridge Theatre in London right now knocked me out. And it's so, <laughs> it's so great. And the, the continued... Uh, reprised endings of Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat really, yes. really warmed my heart. I um, thought, Cedric Neal's a legend, isn't he? He's oh, so good in that one. Oh, my goodness. The whole cast. Mm. And there was Sky, dangerous and sexy. You might recognize the, um, the uh, light-colored linen suit that he was wearing on stage from something similar that I pulled out of my closet today. So still to this day inspiring you, Sky Masterson. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's, he's, a, he's from New York. He's, he's dangerous and he's <laughs> compelling and he sings beautifully. These are, you know, I, the first one I, I am and the other, the other three I aspire to. So this production at Bridge Theatre, it's an immersive production. And maybe that's why it's caught you in the way that you haven't. I know like something like Into the Woods, one of the first musicals I really loved. And once you've seen the jokes done really well, if you see them done slightly differently you know how good they can be, so it's, it's hard. And I'd have to see Into the Woods in a completely different form for it to blow me away in the same way it did. I think it's the same sort of thing with this, because it's immersive. Well, I didn't join in the immersive part. I sat in one of the old people's seats oh, uh, in the back. Yeah, uh-huh, absolutely. And you know what? I still loved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the energy's infectious, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. It was, it was really great. I mean, I would, I'd love to go. I don't... Uh, could I, can I can I stand up for two and a half hours to my favorite show? Sure, but I was I was feeling particularly self indulgent and lazy, and I sat sat back and let it all wash over me, and I and I loved every second of it. 
Favourite musical currently, Running in London, that's a strong choice. A lot of people have said that as their answer, Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theatre. I interviewed Cedric Neal and Celinda Schoenmaker, who played Sarah Brown, the, um, the other day, and they are lovely human beings as well. That makes me really happy. When people yeah. are that talented and also can be so humble and hold a conversation, it's lovely, isn't it? What are, what are their favourite shows? Oh, God, let's think. Well, weirdly, let's jump ahead to a question that you had a answer to, which I can relate to them. Because for the question of which show do other people really love, which doesn't connect with you in the same way, Cedric Neal said, actually, A Strange Loop, because it was so close to his life. Ah. It was so weirdly triggering for him in some ways that he couldn't love it in the same way other people did. Sure. Not to say it's not good, but it's so powerful for him in particular. Sure. Um, but yeah, that was your answer for, I believe... What show made me laugh the most? Yes. Uh, I, I knew that I wanted to talk about the musical A Strange Loop and, because it did so many things to me. Mm. It's, I saw it off-Broadway when it opened, uh, and before then, um, I got to see some of the songs in Cabaret Evening. So Michael R. Jackson, who wrote the show, he and I were writers-in-residence together at the uh, Williamstown Theatre Festival, and we would sort of come across one another at the musical theatre evenings in New York City. And I, I was at one of those sort of Monday night, in, in New York, theaters, uh, theaters Dark on, on Monday nights. Uh, and, um, and so the Broadway people go and sort of, you know, play for the rich old ladies to see if they want to get their shows funded. And I saw Michael sit at the piano and sing with his lisp the, the song, the hook of which is, the second wave feminist in me is at odds with the dick-sucking black gay man. <laughs> And I watched these old ladies in the front row clutching their pearls, and I was like, this guy's great. He's so funny. And his, the, the two things about Michael's writing bo, bo, in Strange Loop and generally is he is a super craftsperson. Like, he, all of the Sondheim-esque rules, like, he's right there. And he doesn't give a fuck if you don't like the thing, if you're offended or triggered, much like uh, our colleague that you mentioned a moment ago. Michael is, uh, the, the writing he does is so confident. Mm. And I don't mean he d that he himself, the person, is confident in doing it. That's not what I mean at all. I mean that the, the writing trusts itself to be the best version of itself because he's really thought about it for a very, very long time and he's very, very smart and he's a very good writer. And Strange yeah. Loop, the way that Hamilton is virtuosic lyrically, like the most dexterous show you've ever heard, to me, Strange Loop was the most emotionally virtuosic show I've ever seen in that it felt more like a real person with real challenges and real shame and guilt and love than I'd ever seen in a musical theater show in my life. And it wrecked me, and I was glad for it. I mean, that must be a very common reaction to seeing The Lion and now <laughs> A Mountain for Elodie. It seems like that sort of emotional truth is what you go for as well, for not necessarily... Um, trying to reflect everyone's experience, but trying to tap into the commonality of these emotions. Yeah, well, I suppose there's... The, something that I learned writing The Lion really surprised me, which was the more specifically I wrote about a personal experience, the more clear it became to an audience. And the more clear it became, the more it was understood. And the more it was understood, the more people could relate to it and thus draw universality from it. So if I'm to sort of distill that, from specificity comes universality. If I were to try to write about grief generally, I think it would sound vague and bland. And, but if I write about the grief I have over Eddie Van Halen's death, mm -hmm. which to me was manifested in, in three very specific things, which was weeping while eating a bowl of chili while watching the music video for Hot for Teacher. And I was, I sort of stepped out of myself and saw these three seemingly contradictory things, this sort of um, convergence of these three weird things. And I thought, well, isn't grief supposed to be your sort of crying gently looking out a window into the rain? And I was like, not for me. For me, it's like sobbing into a bowl of chili, which I'm eating while I'm watching the music video for Hot for Teacher where a bunch of 10-year-olds are in school with their teachers taking off her clothes. And I was like, well, this is grief for me, and I'm going to write a song 
about this. And maybe it's not that people will have had this exact same experience, but they will have had an experience where a different, with their version of different realities converged to manifest grief or love or loss or happiness or confusion or guilt. And then they'll then relate to, to what the, sh- the song is that I'm talking about. Exactly, because it's ridiculous in many ways, grief sometimes. And if someone has a ridiculous experience while grieving, while being sad, and it's not like a music video with rain hitting the window and they're staring out <laughs> love lawn, um, they, they can relate to it more because they feel like you can see the other side to grief, which isn't always reflected in less truthful art or more cliched art. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Benjamin Scheuer, at this point in our chat, he's kind enough to give a little performance of the song See My Heroes and also break down some of the compositional and lyrical choices and give us some insight into into that songwriting process. It's really fascinating stuff and it really made me appreciate his new show, A Mountain for Elodie, that the song's taken from even more. So make sure you get yourself down to Edinburgh, up to Edinburgh, wherever you are. All the details for tickets are in the show notes as well as all the social media links you need so you can follow along with his Edinburgh adventures. Get on that and enjoy this wonderful song breakdown. All right, so I'm speaking a little bit louder because I'm a bit farther away from the microphone so I can also play. So this image of me sobbing into my bowl of chili, which I'm also eating while watching Hoffer Teacher, I wrote the last verse of this song, See My Heroes, which is, I am having dinner when I learn you are gone. Sometimes we beat cancer. Time cancer won. I'm grateful to my wife who doesn't think I'm being silly when I put on hot for teacher and weep into my chili. A quarter century separates the death of you and him. So, what do I feel? A small part of my dad has died again. Oh, if anybody asks why I play the way I do. Tell them they can blame it on my father and you With my guitar, I'm ready for every low and high But nothing could prepare me to see my heroes So that, that's the last verse. And so I wrote this song backwards. Uh, that wh- the reason I was sad, I realized in the writing of the song, was because it, Eddie Van Halen's death felt to me like my father had died again. And so then the first verse of this song had to introduce this concept. And I, re- I was six years old when my dad got me a Van Halen tape. And so I just wrote that down. She's driving with my father. I am six years old. When eruption comes erupting from the Volvo's radio. A six-string revelation, a song without a word. I think this has got to be the coolest thing I've ever heard. Some kids get a spaceship, some kids get a pet. My dad gets me 1984 on cassette. So just to break that down, so when Eruption comes erupting from the Volvo's radio. So Eruption was the second track on Van Halen's first album, 1978, and it was unequivocally the most technically adept piece of electric guitar playing the world had ever heard. And... um, uh, it involves something called tapping, which is where I used both hands on the guitar fretboard. There we go. We're going to have copyright problems with Eddie Van Halen. No, no. Yeah, there you go. Right. And, and I realized as I wrote this uh, guitar part for this song, and when eruption comes erupting from the Volvo's radio, and I could have sort of, you know, I could have tapped there, right? To give, But I felt that would have been a bit pastiche. And so I needed to adapt a sort of unexpected technique on the acoustic guitar to reference this Eddie Van Halen erupting, erup- eruption erupting from the Volvo's radio. So I, here's what I do, I go like this. Which is a sort of both, I don't know what to call it. I first used it in the lion uh, in the reprise of Cookie Tin Banjo it's not on the record, Songs from the Lion, so you'd have to go to the uh, Broadway HD version of The Lion and watch the reprise at the very end. But it's, a, it's quite an interesting technique, and I'd never put it on a... I'd, I'd never use it on record. And so, so that was verse one. And then verse two 
was me and my dad at, just watching Eddie Van Halen play for the first time, and I sent a draft of this lyric uh, of the song to my friend Sam Wilmot and Alan Schmuckler, two songwriters who I admired hugely. Um, uh, bo both Sam Wilmot and Alan Schmuckler had won a prize called the Cleveland Award. Now, I, I won the Cleveland Award last year, but when I was working on this song, See My Heroes, I had not won it. And Sam and Alan both had, and they really held this over me. Uh, they're masterful lyrics. Anyway, I had... I had a verse all about Ben and Dad at a Van Halen concert listening to Van Halen play, and Sam Wilmot was like, no, 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 no. This is your act two. It has to be a dialogue between Ben and Dad in the car on the way home from the concert. The concert, the concert is, is the, the sort of the, the distraction to the listener, but the real thing is the conversation between these two characters. Dad has to leave Ben with some like, wisdom that he takes because he's about, dad's about to die in, in like the next line, right? So I changed, the ver verse two became this. Seventh fret harmonic, first note you play live when we come to see the balance tour. Summer 95, as you're dancing on the notes, I think that's something I could do. When I tell my father, he says, yeah, I think so too. And so five syllables, yeah, I think so too, of dad's encouragement. I had only five syllables, five melody notes, for dad to leave wisdom to Ben before, um, uh, yeah, I think so too. The memory of that moment helps me through the hardest years. After spring of 96, when my dad disappears. So the memory of that moment of the words, yeah, I think so too, dad saying, yeah, I think you can play like Eddie Van Halen, which really, of course, meant, I think you can play like yourself. And so the guitar part of this actual song that I actually play in actual amount and fidelity has to be its own character. The guitar part has to be a character. It has to tell part of the story. It also has to corroborate that if Ben says the way I play, I, the reason I play like I do is because of Eddie Van Halen and my father, the guitar part better be darn good. And so once I'd written the music and lyrics uh, or the melody and the lyric of the song, I then went away and recrafted the guitar part and sort of practiced for a month. I wrote something I couldn't play. That is the best way to write a good song, isn't it? If you find a technique, I mean, Eddie Van Halen is an obvious one. I think every guitarist has watched Eruption and thought, if I could learn a couple of those techniques, no, let's just learn this whole thing. Let's write a song that's like it, but I can't play, and one day I will be able to. And that's where the genius comes from. It's not really copying, it's taking techniques and trying to do something new and beyond. Yeah, recalibrating them, adapting them, yeah. sort of recapitulating them, you know, turning them on their heads, using them to tell stories, new stories. Mm. I loved hearing about, about the lyrics in such depth as well. It seems like, as you're saying, because you're not said about Van Halen, you're said about your dad, and then the way you were saying in the second verse, um, that just becomes clear through the lyrics. It changed from being about the Eddie Van Halen show to being about the conversation. Yeah, it, it was Alan Schmuckler who was like, you know this song's not about Eddie Van Halen, right? <laughs> I was like, sure it is. He's like, no, it's not. It's about you and your dad. And that's why collaboration is so often overlooked in musical theatre. Even if it's a show where you've written all the songs, you've written all the lyrics, you pretty much perform it on your own up there, on your own. But you still talk to people. You have directors, you have producers, you have people to bounce things off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Though I would, I would use a different word than collaboration. When I think collaboration, I think we're, we're specifically working together on the show and we are sort of artistic contributors, whereas my songwriting pals and I will offer each other help and notes and thoughts on one another's work all the time with the, the clear... Uh, with, with the clarity that we're not collaborating. That if... if Alan Schmuckler sends me a lyric, what do you think? And I say, here are the 10 things I would change. I'm not a co-writer. I don't want co-writing credit. Uh, I simply, when it comes time for me to send him a lyric and I want his wisdom and thoughts, I want him to tell me how to fix it and I don't want him to take any credit. That's a great way of letting go of ego a bit, of showing people raw lyrics, of raw songs. Did it take a long time for you to get that sort of courage? I've been, yes, it has it taken me a long time to get courage to show people early drafts? Well, the, th the thing I've learned coming up in the open mic scene in Greenwich Village is it's, it's a really great way to know what's working, what's not. You, you write a draft of a new song and you go and play it for some people. And you know your second verse isn't working because that's when people stop paying attention. Mm. And so knowing that something's not working is usually, I suppose it's, it, that happens quicker, but well, 
That's a very, very good question you're asking, Ian. Uh, I, I'm sorry. We've got 15 minutes left and we have to answer all these big questions. No, I, li- I, li- I mean, I love talking about working with friends who I trust. I suppose I try... Well, let me, let me say this. The best way I can give a note to a songwriting colleague is to say, I notice. I use the phrase, I notice. Rather than, I really like your second verse. Or I really hate your second verse. Mm. If this, if I, if the second verse stuck out to me, I will say I noticed your second verse, and then you, Ian, can you can go away and say, oh well, gosh, Benjamin noticed my second verse. What did he mean by that? And then, then it's your puzzle to uh, to work out. Uh, if I know people really, really well, and we have a shorthand, I can say, hey, I think you can write a better bridge than that. Right. Um, or think about small words. Think about the words and, but, so. Very often they, they occur in that order. This and this, but this, so this. I'll, I'll word search the words and in a script, in a lyric, the words but in a lyric, the words so in a lyric. Almost always, if, if, I, if, if there's too many of them, I can cross, and you can just cross out almost all the time and cross it out. But is a crutch. So better only be at the end of your song. Mm. Similarly, the word just is a word that I almost unequivocally despise in lyrics and try at pain of death to avoid. When you need an extra syllable and you try and say, I feel happy, I just feel happy. It's, it fits so perfectly. It's so easy. Uh, yeah, it's an easy me, way out. Makes me crazy. Makes me uh-huh. crazy. It is the, what is it, of the destitute? It's the, what does Sondheim say in his, in his composition book? It's the refuge of the destitute. <laughs> I don't remember that quote, but it's yeah. perfect. Yes, perfect. Yeah. the word just is the refuge of the destitute. <laughs> well, we should actually focus on these. We're running out of time. Okay, so, back so, to the questions. I know, but I could learn about composition. I should be selfish over thinking about my listeners. But anyway, our listeners will want to know what your favorite movie musical is. I watched Wizard of Oz with my four-year-old recently, and I was really knocked out by it. It's it's a tremendous, a tremendous film. The songs are so great, and yeah, I, and she loved it. She's four. She was like, "Daddy, this is very, very, very good." What strikes me about that film is how colorful it is. If considering it was filmed about a hundred years ago or something, yeah, very color, nearly, it's, yeah. It's shiny, it's bright, it's sharp. It's one of the most gorgeous-looking films, despite all the technology. Right, of course, on. it's black and white until they get to Oz, and then it's colorful. And a lot of people would never have seen a color movie. I can't imagine the impact back in the day. I, well, I mean, it's still knockout. Uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. I, I, I found it's a fabulous, fabulous movie. And what else do? I mean, Lion King is is beautiful. Little Mermaid is beautiful. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is great. Once. It's a really cool movie. Yeah, I guess one as someone interested in musical theatre and acoustic guitars and folk songs and, and that sort of thing, I guess that connected with you. Yeah, Glenn Hansard yeah. writes some really beautiful songs. And they also, I, you know, they made that movie for very little money and they did a great job and it became a big Broadway hit. So you too can make a hit <laughs> movie musical if you, uh, if you write a bunch of good songs and, you know, have a friend with a camera. It's super inspirational. Is it something you aspire to one day? I would love to write the score for an animated musical feature-length film with Peter Bainton directing. Now, Peter Bainton made five music videos for songs of mine, the first of which was the title track in my show, The Lion. Most recently at the Oscars, Peter Bainton won an Oscar for directing the best animated short. Uh, He's one of my very favorite people. He's one of my favorite collaborators. He's one of my best friends. Saw him yesterday. Our children were playing in the park together. And I would love nothing more than to make a feature animated movie where he writes and directs and I write the song. So if you're listening, someone, uh, we love $25 million. We won't let you down. You've asked for this in the middle of a thunderstorm on a boiling hot day. Zeus is listening. The gods are listening. Yeah, you hear that? You hear that, everybody? 25, 25 million pounds for uh, Peter Bainton and Benjamin Shore to, uh, to make a, a great animated children's musical, <laughs> musical classic. You know what's also great? The new Matilda movie, directed oh, by good. Matthew Warchus. Boy, oh boy. That? Oh, it's so good. And Tim Minchin wrote a hell of a score, which I think is really elevated uh, even more in the film version than it is on stage. Have you seen the Tim Minchin Groundhog Day musical yet? I saw it in New York City, and I'm excited to see it back at the Old Vic again. 
Yeah, reviews have just come out. I've seen it twice already since it's reopened in London, let alone and, before. And? Loved it. Of course I loved it. I mean, I saw it the other day and they're all in their winter clothes on the hottest day of the year. I felt so sorry for them. I was sweating to death in that theatre, but it's such a good show. I'm, I just did a, a short show with the old Vic called Water from Dust. They commissioned a 10-minute monologue musical for me. And I'm chatting with them about uh, a musical theater adaptation of one of my children's books, which is called 100 Feet Tall, mm. and putting it on stage uh, next year. So uh, nothing to report yet, but crossed fingers. We have questions to get through, but we will zoom through those because I want to talk a little bit about children's books because your wife is an illustrator, is that right? Yeah, my wife, Jemima Williams, draws pictures and we've made two children's books together, each of which is based around a song that I wrote. The first song is called Hibernate With Me. And it's about a big bear and a... Well, the children's book is a big bear and a small bear and the big the small bear says, I feel sad and scared. The big bear says, that's okay. Oh, You are still worthy of love. And then... Yeah, thank you. And... um. That song is now my most popular song on Spotify, having uh, passed a million listens recently. <laughs> Who would have thought? Well, children need something to get them to sleep. Hey, there it. you go. If my, if my music can be a, soporif- a soporific, then, <laughs> and then I've achieved something. And then 100 Feet Tall is about a bunny rabbit who finds a seed, grows it into a tall tree, 100 feet tall. And there, Jemima draws beautiful pictures. So there's, there's a, a number of songs about Jemima in the show Mountain Fidelity, uh, including the song Hello, Jemima, and uh, a song that is still unwritten. Perhaps when you hear this podcast, when it's published, uh, a song called Immortalized will be finished. But uh, as of today, the day of recording, it is not. (laughs) You put so much of your personal life into this show, and you actually really... I went to see two of the Crazy Cox shows. You're talking to fans for ages afterwards. People must feel like they know a lot about your life just from seeing this show, which obviously they don't. It's an hour that you tell them. You're not telling them all of your life. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it. when I heard the term autobiofictionography, it really resonated <laughs> with me. And of course, I do try to be very, very honest, but it's a very controlled kind of honesty. It's a hyperbolic honesty. It's a distilled honesty. It's a, it's a falsified honesty to make art you know the, the fear of flying is a, it's a wonderful novel the i can't recall the author's name right now but she talks about how by the very nature of writing something down you're giving it order mm. and and that is in and of itself a falsification so you know i hope people come and they they'll learn about my life sure but my hope is that they'll sort of they'll see their own their own version of their own life in in a mountain fidelity well speaking of honesty which musical might people be surprised to learn you love the My Little Pony, net, most yes. recent Netflix movie, because those songs are written by Alan Schmuckler, and there's a song in it called Angry Mob, mm. which is basically a song about Trump supporters, and it <laughs> snuck into this children's movie. And I knew Alan had done the film, and I hadn't watched it, because I didn't think I was going to want to watch you know, a feature-length movie about My Little Pony. But my daughter, over Christmas, my daughter wanted to watch it, and we were watching it. And then I heard Alan singing, from the computer, and like, I know Alan's voice very, very well. Of and I thought, did, did he play one of these characters? And I looked up, and it was this, this sort of Trump supporter-esque pony rallying an angry mob of ponies, cartoon ponies. And I, and I listened carefully, and I was absolutely knocked out. And I watched the rest of the movie, and then I went back to the beginning and watched it again. And it's very well done. It's a sort of surprise. There's some really, like, real Easter eggs in the most recent My Little Pony score. So check out Alan Schmuckler, whose tagline on his Twitter profile, I believe, is terrible name, great songs. (laughs) What do you think is the most romantic musical? So Band's Visit portrays romance and unfulfilled romance at that in a stunning way. I love that show so much. David Yazbek's songs are outstanding and Mm. very funny and surprising. And E. Tamara Moses' book is, is a work of understated brilliance. So, so good. Um, did you see the Don Mar production they had recently? She sure did. As good as you could have hoped? Yeah, yeah. I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, and I, I saw it on Broadway a few times, and then I saw it in London. Yeah, that, 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 show, that show really knocks me out uh, and breaks my heart. So I saw it with my mother in London, and she loved it too. Oh, it does have that cross-generational thing about it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a story for everyone. It's beautiful. It trusts itself in how small of a show it is. Mm. It doesn't try to make any large points about life or the thing we learned. And because of that, I, I resonate to it on a big emotional level. 
Um, what musical have you never seen that you think you should see? So when, when you wrote me these questions, I said to you, Polly Finley, who's directing my show, Mountain Ferelity, is directing Assassins at the Chichester Festival, and I'm going to go see that show for the first time. Uh, so I just saw it a few days ago, and I, and I loved it. Uh, and the show that I haven't yet seen that I really want to see is Michael R. Jackson's White Girl in Danger. Which hopefully will come to London at some point. Oh, I hope so. I'm sure it will. Which musical's fictional world would you most like to live in? One of the great things about being a theater writer is I get to create worlds that I'd like to live in whenever I write a new show. And when you're writing a show, you do live in that world. I'm, I'm working on a piece of theater right now, a piece of musical theater, about Peter Mark Roger, who wrote Roger's Thesaurus. And uh, Rick Ellis, who wrote Jersey Boys and Peter and the Starcatcher, is, is writing the book. And... Uh, I made a children's book called 100 Feet Tall that I told you about a moment ago. With yeah. My wife drew the pictures, and I love living in her pictures <laughs> because I love, I love her drawings. It was her drawings that I fell in love with, and so I fell in love with her uh, when I first met her. And uh, Melis Acker is writing the, the book for that show. So, yeah, well, I mean, there are a lot of worlds. If anybody has any good ideas of worlds to live in, tell me, and I'll write you a musical. <laughs> How far through the process are we with the, the Thesaurus show, the Thesaurus musical? Incredible. I've been working on that show for eight years, and Rick wow. and I have been working together for three years, and we are very close to completing our first draft, which is farther along than any first draft of anything I've ever done. R Rick Ellis is an extraordinary collaborator and a very, very experienced writer, and I've learned a, a ton from him. We're just about ready to sort of try and get the show on its knees, if not on its feet. I have a few more pieces of, uh, a few more songs to, to write for it. And there's, in the room that we're sitting in right now, there's a, there's a piano over there. Mm. Uh, before you got here in, I was working on one of the melodies for uh, one of these Roger songs, which, so that, that show is called Treasure, which is what thesaurus means in Latin. Uh, and... The score for Treasure is very, very different sounding than the score for Mountain Fidelity and Lion, both of which sort of live in folky pop rock worlds. Yeah. It'll be really exciting to see a show from you where it's, it's a story not about your life. It's, it's proper, mu proper musical theatre writing, yeah. not like the nonsense you do now. <laughs> if you could direct a radical restaging of a classic musical, which one would you choose to bring up to date or change in some way? So... As a songwriter and performer, I'm lucky to have worked with some really amazing directors, like Sean Daniels, who directed my show, The Lion, Off-Broadway, Alex Stenhouse, who directed The Lion's Revival at Southwark Playhouse, Polly Finley, who's directing Mountain Fidelity. So I think I better leave the directing to the pros. Though I will be glad to help produce a cast album. Uh, and I'll add uh, the director, Peter Bainton, to my list of people who... Um, who I'd like to who I'd like to keep working with, but yeah, no, I don't think I don't think anybody needs to see me directing a show. <laughs> yeah, it's the sort of thing when you can no longer sing, when you can no longer perform. Maybe the switch will go in your head when you're seventy years old, and suddenly you'll become a great director. Hey, who know. knows? It's very possible. <laughs> well, the big question, the amazing big question: if you were the mayor of musical theatre, that made-up position, if you had that power, which show would you order be staged forever so you can go see it whenever you want and in which venue? Well, you're the you are the actual mayor of musical theatre. If, well, if I'm not no one mistaken. else was calling themselves the mayor of musical theatre. There's yeah. a gap in the market. Yeah, but. and so since you are the mayor of musical theatre, and uh, because, you know, I told you I, I'd, be, I'd be very happy for Cabaret, Guys and Dolls, Hamilton, Fiddler, <laughs> Little Shop, Strange Loop, Tommy Rent, Sweeney, all, all of these shows. But, but I'd love to hear which, as the actual mayor of musical theatre, which show would you order to be staged forever and where? This isn't how it works. This isn't the format. Okay. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> so, the, I mean, the reason I came up with this as a concept is because... Hey, you know what came out today? Uh, so, you know, a couple days ago, the Fringe program came out, and there's 3,000 shows or something like that this year. Mm. And Broadway World picked their 10 shows that people should go see. Oh, uh, and they put a Mountain Fidelity on their list. Well, surely it's in the top one show you should go see. At I, I, I haven't seen the other 3,000, so I really can't comment on that, but I, there are a lot of shows that I... There's a show by uh, the, the team Noisemaker called Scots mm. uh, about being Scottish, and that's a show I'd really like to see in, uh, in, in Scotland this summer. I, I know those guys, uh, Claire and Scott, who 
our part of Noisemaker. We were writers in residence together at the Good Speed Opera House in Connecticut, where I was doing a bit of work on a mountain ferality. And so I was I was thrilled to see uh, to see my colleagues on the same list. If listeners, you haven't seen a mountain for Elodie or Elodie's Mountain as it was back then, you should absolutely just drive to Scotland, even if you live nowhere near there and see it. Um, I love the two productions I saw at the Crazy Cox. I love the lion. Sadly, I only saw, well, not sadly, it was great, this other playhouse production, but sadly I didn't get to see it with you starring in it. But I'm a, I'm a big fan and good luck at the Edinburgh Fringe. I'm sure hey, it'll be a success. You. And for, for friends who can't make it to Edinburgh or friends who can, there's a number of the songs that you can watch, uh, some of them recorded live at Abbey Road. Uh, I'm going to release a bunch of new ones uh, in the coming weeks and months. So stay tuned to benjaminshoyer.com or maybe uh, Mayor of Musical Theatre will be kind enough to uh, blast them out into the world as well. 100%. But I've been thrilled to, uh, to, to join you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been a genuine joy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is Benjamin Shoyer signing off from the Mayor of Musical Theatre. Professionalism. Thank you. <laughs> So that was Benjamin Scheuer, a very talented man, a very kind man, an excellent mayor of musical theatre and an even better composer and performer. You don't want to miss out on his show, A Mountain for Elodie at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Really beautiful show. He's performing at the Gilded Balloon, August 4th to 27th, and all the details are linked in the show notes. Absolutely gorgeous piece of musical theatre and you will love it. I can promise you that. Also in the show notes, all the social media links you need for Benjamin Scheuer, for musicaltheaterreview.com, uh, your premier source for news reviews and interviews on all things on stage, backstage and worldwide. And also this podcast at Musical Mayor Pod on all the social medias. Thank you for listening and check back next week for an even more chat about even more musical theatre with even more guests and other stuff. Have a good week. Bye bye.